Okay, we're ready. I'm ready. Amen. You guys ready for God's word to hear what he has to say to us today? Yeah, right. Good. I'm ready. You're ready. Let's do it. So um, I'm going to do is just have um, the verses that we're going to be looking at today on the screen. I'm not going to have anything else. What I'm going to try and do is encourage you guys to bring a Bible. I know, I know, we have all our, we've got all these things now where we can read our Bibles and stuff, and that's cool. Nobody likes gadgets more than me. I'm going to tell you that right now. I have stuff in my drawers, old technology just sits there because I always have to get the newest thing. But what I want to do is I want you to kind of, I'm trying to encourage you to have your own Bible so that you can write in the notes, you can highlight and you can put down stuff that matters to you. Okay, now when I'm preaching, and anyone is preaching, the Holy Spirit may be showing you something different than the person next to you. And so I think it's important, and I have Bibles that are all marked up, so marked up I had to get another one. And now I go back to those Bibles and I look at them and I'm like, wow, it's like going through a journey all over again. So what I want to do is encourage you, so I'm not going to put the text on the screen. I want you to find it however you read it, okay? So if you don't have a Bible, there's these little blue ones we have. They're kind of small text. I hope your eyes are good. If you need one, Michael's going to get one to you. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. This letter that was written to Christian Jews. These are Jews that converted to Christianity. They were going through a pretty hard time. They were suffering a lot of persecution. We read about it in the book of Acts. And some of them were thinking about going back to the old life. They were thinking about going back to the old ways, the old religion, Judaism. They were kind of uh, giving up. Never a good idea to go back. Especially when we read in this uh, second chapter of Hebrews where it says there at uh, verse number 2 of chapter 2, it says uh, specifically, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard well, God had borne sign, witness of signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed them according to his will. So what do they do? They had already heard God's word. They had heard the gospel. So Jesus taught to his disciples, right? We have 12 of them. We know that one of them betrayed the Lord. Who was it? Judas, right? Then those disciples waited for that day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell and the church was born. And their first and only major project was to go and share the good news with the world and make disciples. Bring them back in and make disciples. And that's what the Lord told them. And so that's what they did. And other people came to know Christ. And that's what he's referring to here. But it got hard. It got difficult. Right? They had left all of what they had known all their lives as Jews. 
The temple would soon be destroyed. All of the ceremonies and the smells and the sounds, the trumpets, the, the incense, all those things were gone because now they're walking with Jesus. They're walking in a new covenant. Some of them were thinking, man, we need, we need to go back. And so the writer of Hebrews say, no, don't go back. Why? Because Jesus is superior. Okay, let's put it this way. Jesus is better than anything you can have. Religion, traditions, ceremonies, and rituals. He's better. As a matter of fact, he's the fulfillment of them. So he's now present, and he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we have Jesus, right, in our hearts. So we're going to start at verse number 5 today. Angels are not superior to Christ. Jesus is better. Now, the Jews, they had all these wonderful experiences in their past with angels. We looked at some of them this Wednesday, where they were visited by angels. For instance, Abraham was visited by angels. Prom, uh, Abraham promised, Abraham and, uh, rather the angels promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child before the end of the year. The angels warned about God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. There were angels that appeared to Daniel when he fasted for 21 days. He had to wait 21 days because there was a spiritual battle in, in, the, in, in the spiritual realm, in the air, as it says. What was going on? There was another prince. It was actually one of Satan's cohorts. Right? Fighting. He was called the Prince of Persia. He was fighting against Michael, the archangel, who was going to bring in. So angels are in the Old Testament all over the place. So they have them, they, they esteem them really highly. And what do we know about angels today? We hear a lot of crazy things about them, right? Don't we? Everybody has an opinion what an angel is. But the Bible is very clear, though, that the angels have a position below Christ. So you're not going back to something greater if you go back to the old ways. You're leaving something superior. Jesus is better. Right? So here's what's going on in verse 5. So before I start, I'm just going to pick up from there. We're going to go verse by verse. Uh, let's pray for the sermon, okay? So Heavenly Father, thank you again for uh, the time that we're going to spend in your word. We ask that you open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, so that we might see you, that we might understand how it is that you, your ways are better than our ways. Your ways are what lead us to life. Help us to see this. Help us to understand that what we need is only Jesus. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So look at verse 5 real quick. If you have a Bible, I'm going to read it anyway. But if not, you can follow along with me. It says, For it, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So here's my question. According to that verse, which of the angels is going to be in charge of the world to come? None. That's what it's saying. None are. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that you and I will one day judge the angels. That's a, going to be one of the things that the church does. Believers, those of us that know Christ, we will one day judge the angels. 
Paul would tell them that in 1 Corinthians 6.3 because there was, a, there was some contention, there was some bickering and some conflict in the church and uh, the church was being divided by uh, these people and he was saying, hey, isn't there anyone among you wise enough to resolve this issue in the church? And then he reminded them, you don't need to go to the court system because one day we will judge the angels. That's what he said. So we should be able to resolve our issues. As Christians, right? So he's making this, that reference to, to that. The angels are not going to be in charge of anything in the future. They're servants. They're not the ones who will control the future world that's being referred to here. Who will? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. It was written, actually, in Psalm 8 by David. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Paul is quoting from the Psalms, which is David's words. And he's said in the Psalms, Hey, you know, when I look at the moon and the sun and the stars and your creation, when I look at the work of your, of your fingers, what are we that you are mindful of us? God made and created the universe and this world for us. We see that in the first chapter of Genesis. This is a perfect capsule, if you would. Perfect environment. Everything is for us. Everything is designed so that we can be blessed and enjoy creation. And that's what he's saying here uh, in verse number 6. What are you, man, that, you, uh, that God would... Be mindful of you. He would think about you. Uh, or son of man that he cares for you. For sure, David was out there uh, when he was a young shepherd. You know, he'd be out in the camps, uh, on the fields, maybe with a campfire going on, taking care of his sheep. I'm sure that he might have looked up at the, at the canopy of stars and he might have thought to himself, wow, Lord, when I see all that you've done for us, why would you visit a guy like me. Has anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon? It's amazing how many stars you can see out there. When you look out from Rialto or Riverside, you see very little because our skies are full of either pollution or, or, or fog or even maybe clouds. So we don't see very much. And then the very lights of the city, they reflect off of, off of the atmosphere, which we don't see. We see less. But when you look at it, it's like, can it kind of give you a sense of how great God is? Nobody ever looks at a building and goes, man, that building just randomly happened to be there. It just leaped into existence. No, there's a creator. We have a creator. He created the universe. He created it for us. I, look at the, I like these gadgets. So here's a nice one. This little watch here that I got. This is a lot of cool things. It measures my heartbeat. It tells me how far I've walked, how many steps I've taken. It even uh, starts to give you information from, uh, for instance, uh, like my heart rate is averaging right now about 84. That's pretty good. Pretty amazing, huh, technology. It's a little light that reads into my arm. I don't think it just happened to come into existence by itself, by randomly... No, it's created by an intelligent being. Someone with a mind. Forget about looking at DNA and all that. 
What God has created is amazing. And so take a time out for a minute to look up and realize we're nothing. And yet, he still thinks about us and he cares about us. That's what's amazing to me. And that's what David is saying and that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to, to think about for a minute. What, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? That's verse 6. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. When did he do that? When he gave him charge of all creation. You put, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Adam is the one who named all the plants and all the animals and everything. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. This whole world was under the control of man. And he left nothing outside of his control. He said, here, it's yours. Oh, by the way, and we talked about this on Wednesday, you can eat of all the trees. I don't know how many there were. What, a thousand, uh, ten thousand, maybe a million? I don't know how many trees there were in the Garden of Eden. You can eat of all of them. Oh, except one. You have control over everything except one. That one was given to test. What were they testing? To see if man would believe God. Because he told them that if they ever ate of that tree, that forbidden fruit, if you would, that they would surely die. Just one out of who knows how many trees. You have access to all of them. Stuff your faith. It's like a buffet out there. <laughs> and then what is the one tree that wasn't allowed to be t uh, eaten? What, what does it mean? Why is it there? To test us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have an option. Otherwise, we wouldn't be free moral agents. We wouldn't have free will because we'd be like robots with no choices. But God gave us a choice and wants us to choose His ways and His word above everything else. He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to love Him. And we love Him because He first loved us. And how do we know? Well, in the beginning, because of the great place that He gave them, this earth, this self-sustaining, then of course came the fall. Then came the fall and then entered the curse and then entered death, just like he said. Because in rather than believing God, they believed the deceiver, which was the enemy, the devil himself. And he said, oh, God did not say that. He put doubt in their minds. And then he lied to them, oh, you will not die. Well, here we are. So verse 7 and 8 are talking about that. It goes on to say in verse 8, He put everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, is like saying, but now in the moment, in actuality, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. So God has put everything under man's control, the work of His hands, the moons, the stars, and everything He made, right? He gave man this awesome responsibility. And what did... What happened? Well, the world which man was put in charge of fell into the hands of the enemy because he tricked them and lied to them and they believed him. Right? They had this wonderful responsibility to take care of what God had given them. Endless opportunities in this perfect Garden of Eden. And they blew it. 
They lost it all. You know what? I heard a sermon once. It was called Paradise Lost. Can you imagine? You lose. Have you ever lost something valuable because of a bad mistake? Made the wrong choice and you lost it? Some of these things can't ever come back to you. We find here, though, the explanation for war, the explanation for violence, the explanation for disease, because sin entered into the world. And who is now in charge? The Bible teaches us Satan. He's in charge. How do I know that? Because remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days? One of the things that Satan tempted him with was, with, hey, listen, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus never disputed the fact that he could. And Jesus, of course, said, it is written, you shall only worship the Lord your God, right? He gave him back an answer from the scriptures. That's why we're talking about having a good understanding of our Bibles, because we have a reply when we hear the lies of our enemy. There's a lot of lies out there. So many people are so confused, and that's exactly the objective. We have the one who said, I am the truth. The one who said, I am the way. He's the one that said, I am the life. You can't find it anywhere else. It's all only in Jesus. So, that's what happened. He blew it. And then we see verse 9. The moment, according to the last part of verse 8, it says, at present, right now, we do not see everything in subjection to man. They lost control. Anybody ever lost control of things in your life? It's the one who, with pride, will say, oh no, I'm totally in control. I've got my plans. I see my destination and you never do you never will it'll never happen like you think because we don't have control what happened again Adam blew it but then in verse 9 the author speaks to us not of the first Adam but of the second Adam and that's Jesus who Jesus is the second Adam came to restore what was lost the second Adam, Jesus, came to return and to reconcile man back to God. Go to Romans 5 and read it and you'll find these references. This writer here in verse 9 says, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Here's a weird part. There was a time when Jesus in heaven before the fall and before the rebellion in heaven. You know the angels also rebelled? And Jesus said in one place in the Gospels, when they were talking about Satan, his name was Lucifer, by the way, before he fell. He was telling them, oh, you mean your father, the, the father of lies? Because the religious establishment at that time had fallen into corruption. And he called them or Satan, their father, the father of lies. And they got all upset. And he says, he says to them, I beheld Satan cast out of heaven like lightning. Well, how is it that Jesus, 
who's a man, saw Satan cast out of heaven as lightning. Because he did it. He cast him out. So that was before his incarnation. Jesus existed and was eternal before he became a man. He's God eternal. But yet he took upon himself the form of man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth so that he could redeem man. He came to seek and to save that which he has lost. So that's what this verse is referring to in verse 9. We see him who was a little, for a little while made lower than the angels. Jesus who the angels serve and worship became a man and became lower than them. Oh, how far he has condescended to reach us. What does that mean? How far has Jesus, our Lord, stooped down mercifully and in great love and grace to reach us? That's how far we had fallen. And he was willing to step into this world to reduce himself to one of us, flesh and blood. So that he could redeem us. That's what he's referring to here. So we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. So we see Jesus. But what has happened since his death? What has happened since he went to the cross? Three days later. He rose from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father now in all of his glory, waiting to return, scriptures tell us. But what was he crowned with? Glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Jesus' death was, is considered glory and honor? Yes, you know why? Because his death saves us. What he did for us, we couldn't do for ourselves. There's a song that says, we owe a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's why he came and became a man. It was necessary for him to suffer death. And notice what it says at the end of verse 9. Suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The reason Jesus suffered death, the reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason Jesus died for you and me, the reason that he took what we deserved at the cross, that is God's punishment, God's condemnation, he received it on our behalf so that we could step away free from that, he paid the price, was all because of grace. What is grace? We talk about it so much. Grace is unmerited favor. Simply means we don't deserve it. But he paid the price for us. And then salvation is offered to us as a gift. How many of us like gifts? I do. Anybody here want to take me to lunch for free today? Afterward? I love free lunches. We had a... We had a uh, a friend, uh, we had a, uh, a person who came here before. He was so funny. He would say, oh, I just love the Church of Coffee. And I go, yeah, why? Because it's free. Salvation is free. We either take it or we don't. We accept it or we don't. We have nothing to do with it. He did it. 
We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't be good enough or bad enough. I love there's a saying that says, there's nothing you can do that would make Jesus love you more or less than he already does. Nothing you can do, good or bad, that will make him love you more or less. Because of grace. He demonstrates who he is by how he treats those that are undeserving. You demonstrate that you have Christ in your heart by how you treat those undeserving. No, oh, they're going to have to earn. They're going to have to may not pay back. Mm. No, none of that with the Lord. He came and it says he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for us. He tasted death for us? What does that mean? Let me, talk, let me talk a little bit about that. Does anyone know that in the Old Testament days, the king had a person called a cup bearer? Anybody know what a cup bearer is? So the king would never drink anything unless the cup bearer drank it first. What was the reason for that? Just in case there was someone who had it out for him, the cupbearer would drink and also they would eat the food that would be delivered to the king first. And if they died because it was poisoned, then the king survived. Right? Because he didn't eat it. He didn't drink it. When it says here that he tasted death for us, this is what Jesus became, the cupbearer for us. He tasted death for us. This is why it says in Matthew 26, 39, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? The cup was death. Let this death pass from me. See, Jesus was a human. He knew what he was going to suffer. He knew what he was getting ready to experience. The pain of, we call it the passion of the Christ. The movie doesn't even come close to what he really suffered. And that was a gross movie as far as the suffering of Jesus. He tasted that for us. He became our cupbearer. He's the one who tasted death so that we might live. And that's what he's referring to there. He exchanged places with us. That's what we teach. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the one who performed the great exchange. He took what you and I deserved upon himself so that we could be, in, this is what it means, he got treated like we should have been treated so that we could be treated like he always has been treated, the righteous one. Relationship with the Father, restoration, fellowship that he has, we now have because of what he did at Calvary's cross. So let's keep reading. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, the idea here was that, that it made sense that he for whom and by all things exist, 
So it's Jesus who made all things that exist. He sustains it. He brings many sons and daughters to glory. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The followers of Jesus, those of us that believe and accept Christ, we're adopted into his family. And we share one thing in common. And you know what it is? Our Heavenly Father. We have the same Father when we accept Christ. We're, this, we're family. That's made possible because of what Jesus did. He's the founder. You know what the, the word I like better, and I learned it from the days that I used to read the King James. It says he's the author of their salvation. What's an author? He's the one who created the story. He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who thought of it. He's the one that puts it onto the pages of a book. He's the authority. Author, authority. That's where we get the root word from. He's the author of our salvation. Isn't that awesome? He wrote... this letter to us to reveal himself to us he wrote it to us give us an idea of what we need to show us who we are and where we're heading without him or with him he always tells us the truth you know i really like people who, tell, who communicate the truth. You ever have a relationship like that? Where you know that person is going to tell you the truth? It's always better that they do it gently, right? And lovingly. Kind of, kind of harsh when it comes at you strong. Makes you not want to be with that person. But if you say it in a way that's loving, creatively, and understanding the audience you're talking to, isn't the truth liberating? You don't have to hide. You don't have to live a lie. Some people live their whole lives a lie because they're not willing to look at the truth. They hide from it. The Lord tells us the truth. Jesus is the author of salvation. As a matter of fact, his name, Jesus, is Greek. The name Jesus. He comes from the Greek language. But it it's the, uh, translated from Joshua. So we have a book in the Old Testament. We have a man in the Old Testament called Joshua. But Joshua is the reduced or the cognate, which means it's two words. Jehovah Ashwa. That's the name, that's what Joshua means in uh, Hebrew. Jehovah Ashwa means the Lord is salvation. Who is salvation? The Lord is. He's the only one that can save us from our sin. He could have ignored that the need existed and just let us go our way. And we would forever be condemned eternally. But he chose to send his son. And he chose. It was fitting because after all, it's by him that all things exist. And so the original plan in the garden was ruined because of Adam. But he didn't leave us there. It says so much about him. He was willing himself 
to come in the person of his son and step into this world, again, as I said, to reduce or to condescend to our level, to reach us because no matter how high or how much we stretched our hand to reach him, we can never reach him because he's a holy God. But he stooped down, he bent down, he reached us where we were, he found us somewhere. Where did he find you? My personal testimony is that he found me in a ditch. I don't even, I, I know where I would be had it not been for Christ. In a bad situation, if I had not been found by Christ. I know myself. Our salvation is great. How shall we escape? Back to verse 2. If we neglect so great a salvation. Jesus is the one who came. And he says here he's the founder or the author of salvation. Perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies uh, and those who are sanctified all have one source. In other words, sanctified just simply means that Jesus' followers are set apart. He who sets us apart are set apart because of one source, is what it says. And that is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, it will t uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Here's another beauty of salvation. Does anybody here have a past that the if you didn't have Christ you would be ashamed of it? One of the things that Jesus came to save us from was shame. The shame of our sins. The shame of our actions. He came to remove the shame. No one can point the finger at you and say, you, you, you did this, you're guilty of this. If you've come to Christ and laid your sins at His feet, the one who matters is not going to point the finger at you. The one who can condemn you and judge you, he's not doing it. Because our sins have been removed from us as far as east is from the west. They have been erased. And better yet, they've been cleansed. He's cleansed us of unrighteousness. So we can stand before God in confidence. We don't have to be ashamed. If there's something in your life, I don't know. And that's the enemy who always will whisper, but remember when, but remember what. Yeah, he'll do that. But what we do is we say, there is no shame. As we read here, he says that he, that is why he's not ashamed. Verse 11, to call them brothers. I tell you of your name to my brothers. Jesus sharing to us about the Father. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, verse 13 says, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus has been given us to Him. The Father gave us to Jesus. If we belong to Him, what do we have to fear? If we belong to Christ, nothing. We're His. We've been purchased with the blood of Christ. Goes on to say, verse 14, 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. That, he, that through death he might destroy the one who had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We needed a human savior. It was necessary. And what did he become like? It says here he partook of the same. Jesus partook of flesh and blood like us. He became one of us. John chapter 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did he do that for? Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Guess what? The fallen angels didn't get help. They made their decision. They rebelled and they were kicked out of heaven. And they will one day be judged. Never with an opportunity to be redeemed or restored. He did not help the angels. Because they were there. They were in his presence and they blew it. Right? And now he says, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps the descendants of Abraham. And specifically, those of us who had put our faith in the same God that Abraham worshipped, Jehovah, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he helps the offspring of Abraham. What does it mean, helps? It's someone who takes hold of you and brings you to safety. That's what it literally means. He helps us. I haven't read anything bad yet about who Jesus is. He helps us. And he made, he's made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus chose to be like us. That's incredible. Why is that? And it goes on to tell us. Because he himself, verse 18, has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So it is Jesus, the only one who can come to us and he can say, I understand. I get it. Robert. Or as my students say, I feel you. I'd always say, don't fill me, please. Jesus fills us. He knows us. He knows our name. He knows our address. He knows our pains. He knows what we're going through, what we're not going through, what we want, what we don't have. Everything. Because he was one of us. Right? He himself suffered when he was tempted. Yet without sin. He's able to help those who are tempted. Isn't that what it says? Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's a brother. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why is Jesus made like us? So that he can be merciful. Because he can say again, I understand. He can say again, I felt that. I know that. And I can relate to you. I, he's the only one that can truly say that. A faithful high priest. He's our mediator. He's our uh, defense lawyer. He's the one who stands in the courtroom for us and defends us. 
And last, I want to make mention, and we're going to get, because I want to finish by 10.30 so we can take the Lord's Supper, but it's appropriate that I make mention of this last part of 17, where it says that he's a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And there's a word here that hopefully I can explain to you before we take the Lord's Supper. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation. What does propitiation even mean? It's a theological word. So this is where I think we'll finish before we take the Lord's Supper. Propitiation means to satisfy. God saw sin. And sin requires a just condemnation. Sin requires a penalty. Because God is holy. You go faster than the speed limit, you get caught, there's a penalty. In reality, we've committed crimes against the Lord. We've transgressed. We've gone over the limit. Not only are there sins of commission, things we do, there's sins of omission, things we don't do. So either way, we do them or we don't do them. They're sins. So he becomes our propitiation, which means he's the one who satisfies the payment God required to forgive sins. So the one seeking satisfaction required a sacrifice. A worthy sacrifice is satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross to meet that need for us. Propitiation. It's a, he, the sacrifice of Jesus, another word that comes from propitiation, is appropriate. You hear it? Propitiation, appropriate. Jesus is the appropriate sacrifice to satisfy the demands of God for the payment of the penalty. He made it for us. And God is satisfied. So when you receive Christ, God is satisfied and you're adopted into his family with the hope of eternity and a purpose now. A reason for living now and that's uh, to serve him and to live for him. Goes on to say, and that's the end of verse, with verse 18, he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are tempted. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we're tested. Because he became a faithful high priest. He became just like us. He understands our struggle. He knows what it's like. And he comes to our side to help us. He offers us a hand. That's the picture that the Hebrew writer is trying to give us. Don't we serve a wonderful Lord? Go to Him. Run to Him. Embrace His message and His love for you and His mercy and grace for you. He will never let us down. And that's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us a picture of who Jesus is and how it is, Lord, that we have in him the one who can reconcile us, the one who became sin for us, the one who took sin and the one who received on his own body and absorbed for us that which we deserved 
But we can walk away from all that. There's no judgment for us. There's no guilt. There's no having to suffer or having to do this or the other thing because Jesus has done it all for us. He's the author of salvation. So it's my prayer, Lord, this morning that if someone here who has not ever received Christ into their heart, if they have never said yes to the good news of salvation that comes through Christ and Calvary's cross, that right there where they're sitting, you know their hearts, you know what they're thinking, they're, they can fellowship with you right where they are, that they would say yes. That they would, by faith, receive the redemptive work of Christ on their behalf. That you, Lord, would cleanse them, would forgive them. And they can walk out of here today knowing, Father, that they're right with you. That the only way to be right is through Jesus. We thank you, Father. We ask you to bless our our Lord's Supper that we're going to take right now, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.